is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our twice-monthly series, Rule of Law. This isn't a series about arcane bits of legal theory. These stories are about how the rule of law silently shapes the world around us, without us even thinking about it or knowing it. And some stories, like this one we're about to hear, show what happens when the rule of law breaks down and rules are not applied equally. Here's Stan with the story of a teacher from St. Paul, Minnesota. Meet Aaron Benner. I'm the son of a retired police officer in St. Paul, and my mother is a retired bookbinder. I grew up with strong work ethic. Father worked 30 years in in the St. Paul Police Department. I have three brothers, and they're all police officers, uh, one in Minneapolis and two in St. Paul. Uh, So I'm like the oddball of the family. I went to education. But he did not start out in education. After earning his college degree in criminal justice and sociology, Aaron's first job was in juvenile probation. And like so many in the justice system, Aaron kept an odd schedule. I would work four days on and three days off. I had Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday off. And I found myself being bored, so I started to volunteer volunteer in uh, elementary schools around St. Paul. And I realized as a volunteer the respect I got and the classroom management that I displayed was often better than the regular teacher. And I'm not trying to be arrogant, but the kids would always tell me that. And I kind of felt embarrassed because I would show up as a volunteer and I would have instant respect. I would ask the kids to do things. If there's any challenging kids or if there's any disruptions, they would always listen to me. So I realized I had a gift to work in school. So I decided to quit my job and to go back and receive my teaching license. And I became a teacher. Now to do that, Aaron had to go back to school for two more years. I loved going back to school. I really did. It was fun because I realized I was on a journey to do something that I absolutely loved. And that was the big difference for me. Like people say, you know, if you do a job that you love, it's not really a job. For me, I realized I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to get paid for this. I love what I'm doing. So yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't hard. I was only, I was only 25 at the time. And as you might expect, once Aaron entered the classroom, he was great with the kids. It's not just that they liked Mr. Benner, they actually listened to Mr. Benner. But Aaron himself initially chalked this up mostly to appearance and identity. My first principal, her name was Virginia Bunker. I remember that. I would always tell her, oh, it's because I'm black and I was the only black teacher in the school. She's like, listen to me, young man, you're 25 years old. I've seen plenty of teachers around here. You have a gift. Stop saying it's because you're black and male. She goes, kids respond to you like I've never seen before ever. Take that as a gift. Work with it. She goes, other teachers might be a little jealous. That's their problems. You just work on your curriculum. She goes, but you have the classroom management. You have the relationships down. She goes, that's half the battle. It took me a, a long time to say, you know what? She's right. And I'm going to use this to my advantage. After about 15 years, I realized, like, kids responded to me differently, and it wasn't because of the color of my skin. I think it's, I just learned from good teachers. I learned from my parents. I learned from other people. And for some reason, kids of all races respond well to me. And uh, it was just a gift. And I just thank God that I fell into that profession. With more than 15 years of experience under his belt, Aaron had fully hit his stride as a teacher in and out of the classroom. But there was something else going on in the background, something strange with the school administrators. Things started to go wrong 
in 2011. At this time, I'm teaching sixth grade at a school called Benjamin E. Mays Elementary in St. Paul Public Schools. It's an inner city school, predominantly African-American. My class is predominantly African-American. It's a typical, stereotypical inner city school. We have some problems. We have some good kids, we have some bad kids, but I never had a bad class. I always had respect for my students. One day, I was playing football with my students, and I was known to be that teacher, you know, to always be outside. Girls and boys could play uh, football. I was the all-time quarterback. And I realized so many of the students would always be fighting during the game of football. So I said, I'm the all-time quarterback, and I would always make sure everybody had a chance to catch at least two passes. And it turned into something very special the last, like, five years of my teaching career in St. Paul. Everybody wanted to play. A student was upset one day that he dropped the touchdown pass before the bell rang. And the student dropped the ball and the bell rang and he wanted one more chance to catch a pass. And I said, we can't let him do it tomorrow. And I was talking to him and I kind of put my arm around his shoulder, like, cheer up, no big deal. And as I put my arm around his shoulder, he withdrew and he punched me as hard as he could right in the chest. And it, it could be considered an assault, but it wasn't assault. I think I was and my students were more concerned that I actually got punched by a student. A parent happened to see this situation and helped me restrain the student. I dropped the student off at the principal's office and I take my kids to take a restroom break and have them come back to the classroom. As we get back to the classroom, the principal is there with the student who punched me. And the principal's like, oh, he said he was sorry, he's ready to come back to class. (laughs) And I sat there like, I'm like, are you kidding me? I've never ever experienced a student assault or hit a teacher and be returned back to class within minutes. And the principal was like, nah, this is like a new, um, it's a new route we're going here. And I can tell you, every one of my students was shocked and they were horrified. And we had a class discussion about it. And they were like, this is not right. He can't hit you. He should not be allowed back in class. I mean, they were really going after the student like, man, you need to apologize, Mr. Benner. It was kind of cool to see this community let this boy know like what you did was wrong and you need to take some ownership. They're like, you don't need to go to jail, but you don't hit our teacher. And I wasn't even mad at the student at the time. I was more pissed off at my principal. And at the time, my principal was an African-American man. At the time, the assistant superintendent was African-American. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? Yeah, I missed the memo. I missed the email. Well, I wasn't paying attention to the last staff meeting that a, kid can, a student can hit a teacher and nothing's done. And I'm talking about there's no referral written up there's no call to mom or dad there's nothing there's he's back in your class so something told me something was kind of fishy in my school and when we come back we're going to continue with this rule of law story aaron benner's story and by the way it may be in a neighborhood near you this story here on our american stories
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're hearing the story of Aaron Benner, a teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota, who after more than 15 years on the job was punched by a student. But the real shock was seeing his principal treating this as no big deal. Let's continue the story. Being a veteran teacher, Aaron wanted to get to the bottom of this situation. Why had an administrator seemingly skipped over enforcing a rule as basic as don't hit your teacher? I started hearing other stories from other uh, teachers throughout the district. I can see the day like yesterday, December 2011. I'm talking a good game at school like this is not right. We got to help our kids. And I think one of the teachers is like, yeah, there's, there's a public comment section tonight down at the school board meeting. And I'm like, oh. And that was Mrs. Benson. She was my co-teacher. And I'm like, you know what? And she got her computer out. She signed me up. I'm like, I'm going to do this. And I went home. And I had to write a speech. I think we had three minutes for public comments. And I wrote the speech. I had no idea where that speech would lead me. And I'm so glad I did. But I'm not going to lie. People always say I was courageous. I give all glory to God because I was extremely nervous. I wanted to throw up when I was, you know, had the microphone in front of me. But I knew I had to do it. You know, I'm thinking, if I don't address this, who else is? And with that in mind, Aaron stood up before a room full of his bosses and told them what they needed to hear. There's something strange going on in my school. I said, as a black male teacher, and I remember this, I said, it breaks my heart. And I paused and I looked at every board member and the superintendent. And I said, it breaks my heart to see kids who look like me behave so poorly in our schools. You could hear a pin drop in that boardroom. And I went on to say that as a black male teacher, I understand there's systemic racism in the world. I said, but if we don't hold our kids accountable, we are going to set them up for failure. I don't know what's going on in my school or the school district, but you cannot assault your teacher and have no consequences. I don't know what's going on, but we need to have some sort of conversation with the community. That means parents, teachers, and all the stakeholders. And people nodded and blah, blah, blah. Nothing was done. Nothing? How could that be? Certainly, these administrators and school board members didn't like that kids were hitting teachers. But why weren't they more upset that the rules were apparently being ignored? Shortly after Aaron spoke up in public and raised honest questions about school discipline, the media joined the fray. 2012, the Star Tribune, it's a local newspaper here, they do an article on my speech. The article was poorly written. It was basically saying this black teacher wants to suspend students. I was like, wow. Unfortunately for me, other local writers picked up on the poor writing of the Star Tribune article and got a hold of me. I did more interviews and I tried to explain what I was trying to say. And my story picked up. I was explaining that I think St. Paul Public Schools is trying to lower their numbers of suspensions, which their intention is great. Don't get me wrong. We have a disparity in this country with African-American students being suspended at a larger percentage than any other students. I get it. But if you attribute that only to white racist teachers without looking at all the factors, I have a problem with that. And you can close the gap by just not suspending. Ding, 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 ding. That's what my school was doing. So I started to connect the dots. I'm like, oh, okay. We want to close these numbers, these gaps, but we're not changing the behavior. So that's 2012. I, I'm in a national magazine the summer 2012. Uh, 2013, things get worse, you know, in the school. I decided to transfer to a different school. I go to John A. Johnson on the east side of St. Paul. It's off the chain. I mean, it's 10 times worse. Imagine you're the craziest movie you ever seen about schools out of control. 
That's the school I was working in. And it's an elementary school. I'm talking about kids touching girls inappropriately. We're seeing physical fights. We're seeing uh, bleeding, kids being knocked unconscious, and nothing's being done. We've gone from no tolerance to no consequence. And I'm losing my mind. And this is not my class. I, my class is fine. This is what my class would see in the halls as we're going from class to class. We would see the most egregious behavior that I've ever seen as a teacher. And I'm thinking as a grown man, my students are looking at this as if this is normal. Aaron refused to accept this lawlessness, this chaos, as normal. He would not quietly go along with the program at a school where students could attack each other or even teachers and not get disciplined. So he did exactly what teachers are supposed to do. He talked to his administrators because it is the administrators, not the teachers, who actually have the authority to discipline and suspend students. Whenever I brought these concerns up to my administrators, it would go in one ear and out the other. Then they would have great spin like, well, these teachers don't have uh, the cultural training to deal with these students. I'm like, that's the most racist thing I've ever heard in my life. Not one parent who wants their child to be throwing chairs at a teacher. There's not one parent who wants their child to be humped on by a group of boys and then be explained as cultural dancing. And I basically said in a few staff meetings, what the hell is going on? The answer to that question was slowly emerge as Aaron compared notes with his fellow teachers. Fast forward to 2014, I addressed the school board again with five other teachers. And at this time, we have just realized that St. Paul has implemented new racial equity policies. And these policies basically were just saying that we have a disproportionate number of suspensions. Black students are not learning at the same rate as white students. Black students aren't graduating at the same rate as white students. Everything in these racial equity policies was black, white, black, white. So I would speak up and say, I have a problem with this because racial equity should be about all races. St. Paul has the second most diverse school population in the nation behind New York City. People don't realize that Asian students are the number one minority in St. Paul. I believe at 33%, and I think African-American are at 30 so everything that we did with these racial equities was always black-white. And I was like, this is so wrong. So, you know, I understand you want more black teachers and want more black staff. We never stressed that we need more Native American staff or that we need more Asian staff or that we need more Asian teachers. So I had a problem with the policy from the get-go because I believe it was racist at the premise. You weren't looking at other races. Everything was black-white. And I also said, are we trying to change the behavior of certain students? And with that, Aaron Benner asked out loud the uncomfortable but important questions that most other teachers and parents kept to themselves. And it worked. Kinda. Aaron made enough noise for his higher-ups to pay attention. The next thing you know, the following year, after having a 15-year career in St. Paul Public Schools with having no infractions, I'm hit with a litany of infractions. Five investigations are opened up against me. I'm talking about the most frivolous infractions imaginable. I called in sick. I had the flu. They want a doctor's note. Oh, that's fine. I never had that in my career. I bring a doctor's note. They don't believe it's a doctor's note. I have an investigation. That means you have to get your union rep involved. They ask you questions. Every investigation that I was under, I was told I was unbecoming of a teacher, and the next investigation might result in a termination. 
Even under that kind of pressure, Aaron kept trying to do the right thing, which exposed him to more investigations. One of my investigations, I saw a fourth grader boy, fourth grader, punch a girl in the face, black girl, hit her so hard she was unconscious, I can still hear her head hit the, the floor. And I reported this incident to my principal. And do you know she did not inform the mother? I informed the mother two days later, just to call to check on the girl because I talked to sibling the year before and I got investigated and I was told I revealed confidential information to the mother about her own daughter. So I was investigated. Uh, Mr. Benner broke protocol. He called the mother and told her, yeah, I told the mother her daughter got knocked out. <laughs> I, didn't, I never told her who did it. And I called the mother of the boy, the, the uh, aggressor, and told her what happened. She thanked me. She's like, no one called me. And it was the most ridiculous thing. I mean, it was it was vicious. You know, I heard them screaming all night, fourth graders. But no parents called, nothing. So the, the, the mothers called the school and screamed at the principal. The principal got mad at me. And it was, it was just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Aaron Benner. And this is a heck of a story, folks. And this is happening across this country right now, playing with numbers, toying with the system, toying with penalties and crime and punishment inside the schools. And when we come back, you're going to find out why, you're going to find out what, and you're going to find out who in this remarkable story. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Send us your email address and we will send you our newsletter once a week, our five best stories. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter, five best stories in audio and transcript form. And your stories too at ouramericannetwork.org. You've got a school story like this? Send it on in. We want to hear from you. And we're going to be sticking on this story. Safety in the schools, paramount. You can't have instruction or anything else without it. More on Aaron Benner's story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with the story of veteran teacher Aaron Benner. We just heard how he witnessed one student hit another so hard that the victim hit the floor, but the school administration refused to call the parents or discipline the student. Let's pick up from there. By telling these moms what happened with their kids, Aaron derailed any possible plan to sweep this incident under the rug so that the district would not have to report disciplining an African-American student. But he also gave the district another reason to investigate him, one more way to build a case for firing him. But wait a minute, don't teachers like Aaron have tenure? And isn't the traditional purpose of tenure to safeguard teachers from unjust dismissal so they can research, teach, and speak freely? If you're tenured, and you can investigate it several times. 
All they have to do, they being the school district, all they have to do is prove a paper trail that you have been negligent in any way and they can fire you. So after my fifth investigation and I was waiting for my union representation to take over, which never happened, I realized they're about to fire me. So lo and behold, before I got fired or before I resigned, I, I just called a local newspaper called City Pages and told my story. And I called up City Pages because there was a previous story about a teacher who was anonymous. They had a, uh, they had a picture uh, blacked out and she was so nervous. I was like, no, I'm gonna tell my story with my picture front and center. And I told, I went into my investigations, I told people what happened and I received a lot of support uh, within uh, St. Paul Public Schools, within teachers, with, with, with many teachers. I received a, tons of emails from teachers around the state, like, good luck, we're with you, this happened to me. I questioned uh, my behavior policies and um, white, I was called racist, I was fired. I just, I never knew other people were going through this. The powers that be clearly could not convince Aaron Benner to stop speaking up. But those same administrators still had the power to put pressure on Aaron by targeting people around him. I had a teaching assistant, his name is Sean Kelly, nice guy. So when the district is uh, levying all these investigations against me, they forgot that I had a TA in my classroom. So they're like, you're doing this? I'm like, really? Have you even asked the other adult in the classroom? They're like, oh, I'm like, yeah, of course. So I sent an email off to an assistant superintendent, Andrew Collins. And I let him know, I'm like, I know what you're doing. You're trying to fire me. I'm going to keep on talking. I'm like, and by the way, with your next investigation, how about you ask my teaching aide what happened? Man, uh, I wish I could take that day back. They fired that dude like two weeks after that email. He was such a good TA. But that was payback for me. Like, Benner's got, you know, he sent off emails talking trash, and they fired him. And he was a good man. Good man. Yep. And I take blame for that, and he knows. And he's like, it's not your fault. He goes, you know, they're just letting you know they're coming after you. And since you said that I'm always in the classroom witnessing the good teaching, they're going to fire And they fired him. They fired him, I think, four days before his... He was off of probation. Enough was enough. In 2015, after more than 20 years as a celebrated teacher, Aaron Benner resigned from the St. Paul Public Schools. All through these years, he received strong support from his students, parents, and peers. Remember Aaron's first story from 2011 about the time that a student punched him as hard as he could? But then came the real shock when Aaron's principal walked that student back into his classroom just a few minutes later, apparently saying, hey, it's no big deal. The kid's sorry. He apologized. We don't have to discipline him. We don't have to tell his mother. And we certainly don't have to put this on the record. Guess which side the mother took? The student who punched me was a phenomenal student, had a bad day. When I informed his mother months later during the parent-teacher conference, mother cried. She could not believe her son punched me. And she goes, no one called me? She goes, I don't raise my son like that. And the boy cried too. And he and I had, had already made amends for the problems. She was like, I need to talk to your principal. I said, well, I said please do. She was like, I didn't raise my son to be hitting adults. And then I don't get a phone call about it. So she was even, even upset. Like she goes, I, I just can't believe I didn't get a phone call. I go, yeah, no phone call. I said, I was told everything's okay and the apology. She goes, no, I will handle this situation. And of course, over two decades, Aaron made an impression on far more than just this one student and his mother. My students respect me. The overwhelmingly number of parents support me. They know I'm trying to look out for their students. And I'm incredibly fair. I didn't care if you're an Asian student, white student, 
black, so I don't care if you're an athlete or not. We had rules set in place on day one. We were a community, and I had to thank my students. They always made the classroom a community. I had a principal once tell me that I had the highest number of kids with perfect attendance one year. I'm like, so? And she goes, no. She goes, I think it's because of you. I'm like, no. She goes, yeah. She goes, I've asked several kids, why do you have perfect attendance two years in a row? And they're like, I want to come play football at least with Mr. Benner, which isn't the, the most impressive answer. You don't want a kid come to school and play, play football, but that was nice to hear, you know? So it's just interesting that I took heat and I took heat from people that when the, uh, the main district offices, because I was saying a different narrative that they were spinning and the, the narrative they were spinning had money connected to it. You know, you have a consulting firm who comes in and you give them millions of dollars to tell their teachers they're not doing a good job. It's all about money. And I'm like, nah, you need to talk to your teachers and uh, parents with no money at all. But no, and I, I would always say this too. I would say, why are we asking the parents of black students who do well in St. Paul that have gone on to colleges in these same inner city schools? Why haven't we asked them what they do differently to graduate? You could hear crickets. You could hear, I'm like, that, that's what I would do. So if all these teachers are racist in St. Paul and they, they're not culturally competent, why are many kids that live in the same neighborhoods with the same teacher, how are they graduating from high school and graduating from college? Something is not right here. So I was asking all the wrong questions for them. I was like a loud mouth <laughs> and they had to get rid of me. Because the district had a very different set of incentives. I had no idea when I went to the school board back in 2011 that the St. Paul Public Schools was just trying to follow a federal policy that was in place that basically said if you didn't lower your uh, number of suspensions for your African-American boys, that federal money would be withheld. I had no idea. St. Paul also gave principals and assistant principals bonuses for a number of years, up to $2,500, if they lowered the number of suspensions of their African-American students. I was like, that's incredible. That, like, there's a conflict of interest. No wonder we have a, a decrease in suspensions. But to Aaron, these federal and local incentives to lower the numbers of African-American students disciplined and suspended all missed the point. They lost sight of what really matters. We have to address these problems. We have to change the behavior. These behaviors are not normal. They're not normal for the African-American community. And anybody who says so, they're just pushing garbage. And I think there's... It's like a financial gain if you're a consulting company. You know, you make a lot of money going to these school districts saying, hey, I can close your achievement gap. You talk about white privilege and all oh, your teachers aren't culturally competent. That sounds good, but it's not working. It's not working at all. St. Paul Public Schools, the way they're treating their African-American students, these kids will be unemployed and unemployable. And that's a crying shame. Think about it. Unemployed and unemployable. They will not have the skills to communicate effectively no conflict resolution skills. And don't give me that, that they're black and they're, they've been dealing with racism. No, 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 no. My ancestors dealt with far worse. Not saying it's right, but we have a blueprint how to deal with racist people. Okay, this country, my ancestors, you know, pre-civil rights, reconstruction, yep, we, lynchings, we, we know how to deal with this. Okay, so my point is don't tell me these kids can't learn. If you keep on giving them this victim mentality, that's going to destroy their future. It, it, it breaks my heart. There's going to be a generation of kids that are going to be lost because school systems are not preparing them for their future. They're not preparing them and they keep on making excuses. And 
at some point, some of these school districts are graduating kids and they go off to college and they have to take remedial classes or they drop out because it's all a money game. And when we come back, the final segment, Aaron Benner's story. And what a story it is, folks. And again, this is probably going on in a school district not far from your home. You might want to start asking around. Talk to teachers off the record. Talk to the local police off the record. We're starting to do it right here in our little hometown of Oxford. Let me tell you what a story. And this isn't a left versus right story. It ain't a political story. This one's just outrageous. And we love bringing you stories like it here on Our American Stories. we continue with our Rule of Law series, the story of Aaron Benner, a 20-year veteran of St. Paul Public Schools who resigned after his administration made his life hell. And rule of law it doesn't just apply on the federal level or the state level, but how we apply rules equally across the board, even in our public schools. Let's continue the story. After leaving the St. Paul Public Schools, Aaron Benner found a new school in a different role from which he could influence students. I'm the ninth grade dean of students at Creighton Durham Hall High School, which is a Catholic high school in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I, I love this job. I do miss the classroom. I'm not going to lie. There are some days I miss the community of uh, a bunch of fourth graders, fifth graders. But I'm in a high school now, and this, uh, this community has welcomed me with open arms. But if I, if I could go back and be a teacher one day, uh, I would do it in a heartbeat. And in these years, since leaving the public school system, Aaron has spent plenty of time thinking about what the conflict was all about. Why did so many powerful people try to silence him? Was it because he dared to ask why student discipline must be treated as a question of racism? The suspensions are so bad, and the data shows that kids who get suspended uh, have a hard time graduating, and data shows that there's a school-to-prison pipeline. Okay, let's have a moratorium on suspensions. That does not solve the problem, and that's what I told the school district. The behavior has to change. The behavior has to change. And I'm not, as a black man, I don't speak for every black person, but as a black man born and raised in St. Paul, father's a police officer, grandmother a teacher in St. Paul, mother is a hardworking book binder, there's no way I'm going to have someone tell me that is black culture when you cuss your teacher out. There's no way I'm going to see someone humping on a girl in second grade, you're telling me that's black culture. That's offensive. It's condescending. And anybody pushing that rhetoric needs to go somewhere. And that's what I was fighting about. And for me to try to bring this to my district's attention and just to try to have a conversation and for them to, to deliberately go after me and try to fire me is unethical, immoral, and I'm still fighting. Lo and behold, this is happening throughout the entire nation. And I'm still trying to talk to people. We have to change the behavior. We have to. If we don't change the behavior, we're going to have more kids locked up in our juvenile justice systems. We're going to have more black men going to prison. There are some behaviors that, as a community, that we cannot tolerate. If there's any teacher in the United States who writes a referral for a black girl or any girl who rolls her eyes, that is a terrible teacher. Any administrator sign off on that referral for detention, that administrator should be fired, and that teacher should find another profession. I'm talking about violence. And this whole black-white comparison, I didn't have any white kids in my classroom. 
I have black girls complain about getting felt. I got black boys getting bullied. This is not a black right issue for me. This is a right and wrong issue. And because he sees it that way, Aaron has a particularly strong reaction to some of the divisive messages being directed at young African Americans. You keep on telling the African American kids that your teacher does your teacher doesn't understand you because he or she doesn't look like you. Well, how about the coach? How about your boss? How about this? I mean, if we keep on talking this nonsense, we're going to head back to segregation in a heartbeat. Stop telling our kids that they cannot succeed because their teacher does not look like them. That is not right. I know plenty of school districts across this nation who have black superintendents and black principals in these schools are run terribly. Okay, we need good quality people in these positions that care about students. I don't care if it's a superintendent. I don't care if it's a lunch lady. We need good quality people who care about kids, who want the best for children, no matter what. But keep on pushing this race thing. It's going to blow up our faces, both in our faces right now. And don't get me wrong. Do I think it's great to have a, a teacher look like their students? Yeah, many people have told me that. But there's no data, there's no research that shows that test scores increase with black students because they have a black teacher. Okay, there's no, however, kids have told me, is this different? We like you because you look like my dad. Okay, I get that. I, I, you know, I'll take it as a compliment. But I want people to understand there's no data that shows that test scores have increased when you have black teachers and black students or an Asian student and Asian teachers. You know, and that's a spit in the face of all the white teachers that taught me how to read, you know, either at a public school or a Catholic school. I mean, tons of nuns taught me from eighth grade on. Old white nuns did a great job. Still remember Sister Rose, may you rest in peace, of St. Agnes. She would always tell me that I, I stopped reading Sports Illustrated, Mr. Benner, during study hall. And I'm like, why are you always throwing to me out of 300 kids? And she knows what you tell me? Because you have potential. Man, I used to think that was the coolest thing that this old nun said I had potential. And if I got smart with her, oh, she had no problem putting her hands on me. The whitest can be, and she cared. And she cared. She was strict with every student that came through that school. But I'm not going to sit here and say she wasn't, she had white privilege or she was culturally insensitive. No, she was a hard-nosed nun that was looking out for all her students. And she saw one student, me, slacking, not living up to my potential, and she was going to call me out on it. And she was so proud of me when I graduated. And she always come to the uh, basketball games and football games. And she would say, yeah, you're that ninth grader who was just slipping, slacking. And I'm like, man, this nun was no joke. No, no joke at all. Because while racism and other traumas most certainly exist, for educators like Sister Rose and Aaron Benner, these evils must not be used as excuses to expect less of their students. This is a standard that Aaron, an athlete and an educator, always lived up to. I would have always maybe five or six kids that were labeled EBD, emotionally, behaviorally disorder, you know. And I told them one day, I said, it's funny how after we come in from recess, you know, or before we go to recess, I'm like, it's funny how you're kind of acting. I would put my little quotation mark. You're acting like crazy. I said, but you never jump offside outside when we play football. I said, you know, you never have any offside penalties, never personal fouls. We play basketball in gym. You never have a technical foul. You know why? I said, because you are focused and you want to be out there. But in the classroom, you don't want to do the work. You act a fool. I got your game. I said, check it out. The next time you act a fool in the classroom, there'll be no football. Lo and behold, classroom behavior stopped. <laughs> classroom behavior because if you if you can if you can control yourself playing football you can control yourself in the classroom now for those students who are truly traumatized they could not control themselves 
at recess and in the classroom. But yeah, it's, it's so easy to make excuses, you know, but yeah, we don't make excuses when it comes to sports and other things, but in the classroom and simple behavioral rules, we want to make excuses all the time. No, that doesn't fly. And no doubt, Aaron's keeping the standards high as the ninth grade dean of students at a Catholic high school. In addition to this job, Aaron is still fighting the St. Paul Public School District in court and working hard to get his core message out. Along the way, various folks have tried to turn this matter of law and justice into one of ideology and politics. But of course, Aaron is having none of it. I'm an independent. And I say that because the far right has tried to use my story. I'm like, nah, 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 nah. I had an appearance on the O'Reilly show and people thought I was just black conservative. I have, no, I have no problem with black conservatives. I'm not one. I'm an independent. I voted for Obama twice. I was very proud to be a black president. But I've been saying since day one, once I found out about these discipline policies that he and Arne Duncan and uh, Eric Holder, I'm like, no, I love, my, I love my president. He was cool, but he dropped the ball big time on this education stuff. We know that students of color are far more likely than their white classmates to find themselves in trouble with the law. And if a student has been suspended even once by the time they're in ninth grade, they are twice as likely to drop out. By making sure our criminal justice system doesn't just function as a pipeline for underfunded schools to overcrowded jails, we can help young men of color stay out of prison, stay out of jail. And that's why my administration has been working with schools on alternatives. This is about right and wrong. This should not be a political issue. I have no problem calling out both parties, but the far right and the far left need to put aside politics and try to help our country because right now we're so divisive, it's not even funny. It's crazy. And that division stands in the way of getting the real work done. Here's Aaron taking the story back to the question that matters the most, the heartbreaking question. Why can't students learn as much as they deserve to? as they need to in our classrooms. Imagine your students looking at you, telling you, Mr. Benner, do not go in the hall. We do not want you to get assaulted or beat up. They're in fourth grade thinking their teacher is going to get assaulted. They're traumatized. I would tell people, I'm not worried about my kids passing tests. I'm not worried about my, my students learning multiplication facts. I'm trying to make sure they feel safe on a daily basis. That took precedence. And I actually apologized apologized to several students' parents in 2012. I said, I love your child. I said, but I failed your child as a teacher. They're like, what? We love you. I'm like, no, I failed your child because all I did was protect your child while he was in school. And they're like, I said, I did not teach your child the fundamentals of writing, reading, math, all that for your child to be successful in fifth grade. I said, I'm telling you that now. And they were shocked. I still run into these parents occasionally, and they're like, we could not believe you said that. And they're like, you know what? It showed. You know, the next couple of years, I was like, yeah, because I couldn't teach. I said, your child, your child was looking over his shoulder, thinking the door was going to be opened up and the security was going to be chasing the kid. That happened every other day in algebra. Now, St. Paul tried to, you know, they tried to hoodwink the population of St. Paul. I don't have all the answers. But I want to be part of the solution, and we have to have serious dialogue. And some of these conversations might be uncomfortable. And when I talk to people on the far right and I tell them how many times I've been stopped while jogging or stopped in my car, they're like shocked. Like, what? I'm like, yeah. And then I talk to people on the other side saying, you know, you can't complain about police brutality. 
you're sitting here selling drugs in your own community. I, I don't have no, I don't have any sympathy for you. I mean, there's got to be a middle ground. So I'm up for solutions, but I want to have serious dialogue. And it's okay to agree to disagree. I'm not going to tell someone they're wrong. My 22 years in education has given me a perspective that I think is unique. Doesn't necessarily mean that I'm 100% right, but I think I have a unique perspective. I'm all about solutions, and I'm all about trying to help people become better citizens, no matter what their color is. And there you have it, the story of Aaron Benner. And great job to the whole team. His story, Our Rule of Law series, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we love bringing classic American stories read by great readers to you whenever we can and in the past we've done Vincent Price reading The Raven and that's Edgar Allan Poe's epic poem we had a great reading from Walt Whitman's O Pioneer, O Pioneer we heard a great reader read parts and excerpts of Thomas Paine's Great Common Sense Emerson's Self-Reliance and of course we heard Robert Frost read Robert Frost, and there's nothing like hearing Robert Frost read his own work. And today, we bring you a short story by Ernest Hemingway entitled A Day's Wait, and it's read by actor Stacy Keach. It was first published in Hemingway's 1933 short story collection, Winner Take Nothing, about a nine-year-old boy who's sick during a cold winter. He came into the room to shut the windows while we were still in bed and I saw he looked ill. He was shivering. His face was white. And he walked slowly as though it ached to move. What's the matter, Schatz? I've got a headache. You better go back to bed. No, I'm all right. You go to bed. I'll see you when I'm dressed. But when I came downstairs, he was dressed, sitting by the fire, looking a very sick and miserable boy of nine years. When I put my hand on his forehead, I knew he had a fever. You go up to bed, I said. You're sick. I'm all right, he said. When the doctor came, he took the boy's temperature. What is it? I asked him. One hundred and two. Downstairs, the doctor left three different medicines in different colored capsules with instructions for giving them. One was to bring down the fever, another a purgative, the third to overcome an acid condition. The germs of influenza can only exist in an acid condition, he explained. He seemed to know all about influenza and said there was nothing to worry about if the fever did not go above 104 degrees. This was a light epidemic of flu, and there was no danger if you avoided pneumonia. Back in the room, I wrote the boy's temperature down and made a note of the time to give the various capsules. Do you want me to read to you? All right, if you want to, said the boy. His face was very white, and there were dark areas under his eyes. He lay still in the bed and seemed very detached from what was going on. I read aloud from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, but I could see he was not following what I was reading. How do you feel, Shots? I asked him. Just the same, so far, he said. I sat at the foot of the bed and read to myself while I waited for it to be time to give another capsule. 
It would have been natural for him to go to sleep. But when I looked up, he was looking at the foot of the bed, looking very strangely. Why don't you try to go to sleep? I'll wake you up for the medicine. I'd rather stay awake. After a while, he said to me, You don't have to stay in here with me, Papa, if it bothers you. Doesn't bother me. No, I mean, you don't have to stay if it's going to bother you. I thought perhaps he was a little light-headed, and after giving him the prescribed capsules at eleven o'clock, I went out for a while. It was a bright, cold day, the ground covered with a sleet that had frozen, so that it seemed as if all the bare trees, the bushes, the cut brush, and all the grass in the bare ground had been varnished with ice. I took the young Irish setter for a little walk up the road and along a frozen creek, but it was difficult to stand or walk on the glassy surface, and the red dog slipped and slithered, and I fell twice, hard, once dropping my gun and having it slide away over the ice. We flushed a covey of quail under a high clay bank with overhanging brush, and I killed two as they went out of sight over the top of the bank. Some of the covey lit in trees, but most of them scattered into brush piles, and it was necessary to jump on the ice-coated mounds of brush several times before they would flush. Coming out while you were poised unsteadily on the icy, springy brush, they made difficult shooting, and I killed two, missed five, and started back, pleased to have found a covey close to the house, and happy there were so many left to find on another day. At the house, they said the boy had refused to let anyone come into the room. You can't come in, he said. You mustn't get what I have. I went up to him and found him in exactly the position I had left him white-faced, but with the tops of his cheeks flushed by the fever, staring still as he had stared at the foot of the bed. I took his temperature. What is it? Something like a hundred, I said. It was one hundred and two and four-tenths. It was a hundred and two, he said. Who said so? The doctor? Your temperature is all right, I said. It's nothing to worry about. I don't worry, he said, but I can't keep from thinking. Don't think, I said. Just take it easy. I'm taking it easy, he said, and looked straight ahead. He was evidently holding tight onto himself about something. Take this with water. Do you think it will do any good? Of course it will. I sat down and opened the pirate book and commenced to read, but I could see he was not following, so I stopped. About what time do you think I'm going to die? he asked. What? About how long will it be before I die? You weren't going to die. What's the matter with you? Yes, I am. I heard him say a hundred and two. People don't die with a fever of one hundred and two. That's a silly way to talk. I know they do. At school in France, the boys told me you can't live with forty-four degrees. I've got a hundred and two. He had been waiting to die all day, ever since nine o'clock in the morning. You poor shots, I said. Poor old shots. It's like miles and kilometers. You aren't going to die. That's a different thermometer. On that thermometer, 37 is normal. On this kind, it's 98. Are you sure? Absolutely, I said. It's like miles and kilometers. You know, like how many kilometers we make when we do 70 miles in the car? Oh, he said. But his gaze at the foot of the bed relaxed slowly. The hold over himself relaxed too, finally. And the next day, it was very slack and he cried very easily at little things that were of no importance. A different glimpse into the usual machismo that you get in a Hemingway novel, for sure. 
And that's Stacy Keach, and no one reads anything like he does. As they say, he could read the phone book. Winner take nothing. The day's weight is the story. Pick up winner take nothing if you want to hear the rest of them. Short stories. Hemingway may have been the greatest short story writer this country has ever seen. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we love to hear from some of the greatest writers in this country. And some of our favorites are at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, We've talked to Heidi Mitchell, I don't know, probably a dozen times up till now. And she has a terrific weekly column that we urge everyone to go and read. And again, we do no politics here, no debating here. But we love good stories and interesting, interesting writers. And Elizabeth Bernstein is a writer at the Wall Street Journal. And a columnist there, Psychology and Relationships are her beat and we love those subjects, too. And she had a column that was called Fine-Tune Your BS Detector. You'll need it. And Elizabeth joins us now. Elizabeth, why did you write this? What about right now says we need to be fine-tuning our BS detectors? Well, two things, really. The first is I was attending a psychology conference in Atlanta a month or so ago, and there was a whole presentation. Researchers, psychologists, and actually computer scientists had started to research how to detect and how to confront BS. And the reason they're doing it, so my second reason for wanting to write this, first I was intrigued that they were actually studying, trying to quantify this in a scientific way, BS, but also there's so much more more of it now, uh, or it's, it's been around forever, really, but it's spreading faster and farther now because of the internet, because of bots that go on the internet. They're not even people that are spreading it with intent to harm. So um, these two things together, the fact that scientists are studying it and that it's spreading farther, we have to be more careful about it, made me think, wow, that's something we should look at. And by the way, this was the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, and the title of one particular symposium was BSing Empirical and Experiential Examinations of a Pervasive Social Behavior. So let's ask, what is BS? So BS is a form of persuasion, and uh, the the user is aiming to impress the listener by employing a blatant disregard for the facts. So they're just, it's it's different than lying. Lying is, I might want to impress you, I want you to believe what I'm telling you, but I know the facts, I'm just going to ignore them. The BSer could not care less about the facts. I'm just going to let them fly out the window, I'm just going to tell you whatever I want. And by the way, that's why we call them BS artists. I mean, no one ever calls a liar an artist. But you'll also, you'll hear it often, oh, he's a BS artist, right? Yeah, because people sort of do it. You know, some people do it. We might all, somebody might even come to mind right now for each one of us. Like, we maybe, we all know somebody. But um, people do it. They're very good at it. Just And what they're good at is ignoring the facts, like completely not caring at all if there's facts out there or not. Right. Harry Frankfurt, in his very interesting book back in 2005 called On BS, 
explored how BS is different than lying because liars know the truth and push it aside, while BSers don't necessarily care about the truth at all. Those are your words. So this, in a sense, the BSer is sort of like performance art, and everybody sort of knows what it is if they have any knowledge of the person doing the BSing. And uh, talk, talk about that and why you had said a little bit about how social media was making this more explosive and all the bots. But what was the deeper reason for getting at this? Because something tells me that this is starting to show up on, on couches, in, in disorders. In, I mean, there are, there are real problems attenuated with this now. There are real problems. Like, look, we're in this uh, culture right now where people claim fake news. That's a lie and everything. It's almost like a defense. I can tell you anything I want. You can tell me back the truth, and I'm going to scream it above you. Fake news. It's a lie. You're telling me the wrong. Complete disregard for facts. We are in a culture that is changing fast. You know, I believe over the last few years, with the internet, with things going on in the world, it's it's uh, the discourse out there is um, angry, and I, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm just going to shout above you. And so, in that kind of world right now, people who are doing that, who are these BS artists, can uh, be heard. It's almost like it's becoming a norm in a certain areas. And so that's why it really does. And with the internet, so Facebook, I can post anything I want. And here's something interesting: people who, when they BS when they're susceptible to BS. It's it's the BS that they want to believe, right? right? So I may see something that says chocolate is healthy. Boy, I really want to believe that one. So I'm going to post that. I'm not going to check the facts. I'm going to tell all of my followers, hey, look at this awesome post. doesn't matter who wrote it. Be it. Chocolate is healthy. So we are susceptible to BS when we want to believe it, when it confirms our own bias. This is all out there in the Internet. Everybody's publishing everything they want on their own feeds. This is why in this environment it's really, really important that we sort of get a handle on what information is coming at us and learn to evaluate it. And also, it's exactly why the scientists are studying it now. They know that this is becoming more and more hard and more and more important. Yeah, and I think that you had a line there. It said, basically, if you agreed with the attitude of the BSer, it was great stuff. But if you didn't, it was propaganda. And that tells us, I think that has a lot to do with how we think politically and organize politically in this country, and even on cultural, big cultural questions. And, and I think we've all had confirmation bias in this, in this area for a long time. But I thought was really fascinating was just the, the, what happens with false news and, and rumors. And there was a study at MIT that you talked about and wrote about. Uh, tell the audience about that study, because this is what I found most interesting and, and most frightening about your piece. So MIT looked at, um, over a decade, if I remember, they looked at many, many um, rumors that were spread, information that was spread in tweets. And what they found out was that uh, the false information moved faster and farther than the truth. So when the, when the tre- tweets were based on true information, they did not go as far and they did not move as fast as the false one. And that is terrifying right now. So and what it is showing is what we were talking about, that people, when you believe it already, when it's your bias, say, you know, my dog's a beagle. I want to believe beagles are the best dogs. If I see a tweet that says that, I'm not even going to read the story, see who wrote it. I'm going to move that fast through my Twitter feed, retweet it, because um, it just it is confirming what I want to believe. And so uh, that in this environment, you're right, is terrifying that, that this false information is uh, being spread more than the truth. You know, Michael Crichton, in one of his last interviews on PBS, was asked about, he had written a book about global warming, and he said, there is global warming. I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm as good as any scientist, but I don't know how bad it is. And I think the apocalyptic predictions may be over the top. And the interviewer said, well, why do you think it is that people respond to this the way they do? And he goes, 
Try asking somebody, hey, did you have a good day yesterday? And, and you said, yeah, I had a good day and everything's good. That's not interesting. But say the seas are overcoming the world and make apocalyptic claims and suddenly you get attention. And I think you're sort of saying the same thing here in terms of false claims. Now, he, he thinks that's exact. Crichton was talking about exaggerated claims. And here we're getting right to the substance of false claims. You also write that false claims can override prior knowledge. So talk about that if you could. So people, we have this prior knowledge. I might, in the back of my head, know that beagles are not actually the best breed of dog. They're a little stubborn. They like to eat everything in sight. But I believe it. I want to believe it. And so when something comes at me that says uh, it's different, especially when it's repeated, this is one key thing. When information, when BS or any information is repeated, even just once, we're more likely to believe it. So uh, I may know in my head the beagles are not the best dogs, but if somebody tells me they are, I already want to believe it, and then they repeat it, I'm going to, you know, go for this. This is what I'm going to go for. Another issue that's really interesting in this uh, culture that we're in right now is we all use Facebook, Twitter, our social media to um, sort of broadcast who we are. So we want to broadcast something to our, our basically our like-minded people, our friends. And uh, we tend to then broadcast, we're susceptible then to both broadcast and believe that information that, again, confirms our bias. Uh, so I might be much more likely to read a false claim, decide I'm going to post it on Facebook because it says something about me. Again, maybe it says, you know, just to stick with the dogs, you know, I'm a beagle lover, I'm a dog lover, this is great. Um, it's called tribal epistemology. We're, we're singling to our tribe, this is who I am, these are my beliefs, I share your beliefs. And that's where a lot of fake news comes up to, when we're busy telling each other, see, I'm one of you. Yeah, and who would have known with all this open platform and all this open sourcing that we would become much more tribal as a country? And I think everyone can agree on that fact, that people are now siloing more than ever. And now when you hear a differing opinion, you just call it a lie or you call it false. You can't even stand the idea that someone might disagree with you. You can't stand it. We're at a point where we can't even dialogue. And also, I think we see this, um, again, we don't want to talk about politics, but we certainly see it in politics. But we see it in science. We see it in all areas. I, you know, we get rid of people on our feeds if they don't show us what we want to see. Like, we just get, you know, oops, that person doesn't agree with me. They might be my sister. I'm going to get rid of her on my feed. Don't want to see what she's saying all day. So um, we tend to get, you're right, much more sort of closed in. Now my Facebook feed is just people like me, because that's what I want to see when I open my phone in the morning. I don't want to see anything that I find disturbing. Um, so you're right, we're getting smaller and smaller. And again, in that space, that's where this BS is thriving. Yep. And we're learning less and less as a result. I mean, no one, you know, the idea of a conflict of ideas making and sharpening our ideas. Well, this, this BS stuff plays a part of it. We're talking to Elizabeth Bernstein, and she writes a column at the Wall Street Journal on psychology and relationships. And let's keep doing this. I love your work, and we'd love to have you on our show more often. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for doing what you do and for writing this piece. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. I have sinned, dear Father. Father, I have sinned. Try and help me, Father. Won't you let me in? Liar! Oh, nobody believes me. Liar! 
This is Our American Stories. And, Jesse, I'm not sure what that music is, but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack. The Visioneers. Oh, The Visioneers. I love it. I love it. It sounds like something that our, our friend Trenton, uh, Quentin, not Trenton, Quentin Tarantino. It's very California. It is very California. Love it. Recently, we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this, bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno, to visit with a man named Kevin Ball. Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a a tiny self-declared country. Uh, We sort of see it as a um, expression, a self-expression uh, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Malasia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Malasia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, my friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that, mo- of that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king, I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school, but I stayed with it over the years, and then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation state, completely surrounded by the United States, and as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I don't learn autonomous you're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship, a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would Please. realize... Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no, we do not um, allow other people to move in and become, become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. They see this as a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, We do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, This guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. 
Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. <laughs> at the time I was the prime minister, it was the Grand Public of Goldstein at that time, and I was the prime minister, and I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back, back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would rust us up out of our sleep, and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go, you know, stand a, po a post because it was, you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times. So I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. And then a few years ago, I was reading through my records, and I pulled this thing out. And I said, well, that's kind of cute. That's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discovered that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the to the yeah. East Germany. Um, I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue of there on there, and so forth. And it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty, so it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany. At least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island. It's uninhabited except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever, for as long as at least the embargo goes on. We would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And then in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that <laughs> popular nice. anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way. And she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, it's like a, it's like a separate thing. It was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country. And she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, and it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of like your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malasia uh, has its own customs uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago. And one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. 
Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Cokins measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you, do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, because it's kind of a styling thing to do. But... Anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line, and I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. It wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. Malasi is a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so, uh, and we have, you know, we have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Ball. One of a kind, the micro nation of Malasia. Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is our American stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy? Off oh, the yeah, air? pretty much. Just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there crazy. Yeah. Nice guy, though. Hey, that's what we do here in Our American Stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story, if you want to be. This is Our American Stories. Kevin, the dictator, the head honcho of Malasia, somewhere in northern Nevada. Our American Stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional, a responsible and I hope beloved parent, 
but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, there were no more bad days. I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker, a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day if I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way, but as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort 
and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa and I slept on the floor next to him. At the ready, if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily, even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse, within easy reach while scans were performed IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today, saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament, although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance, and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had. 
and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. I work. I pay the bills. I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver. It was his last, best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's here on Our American Stories. Stories.